Hello and welcome to the Ask the Expert podcast series at the Royal Geographical Society with Institute of British Geographers. I'm Laura and I write resources for the education department here. This recording is part of our growing series of interviews, questions and answers from leading geographical experts and practitioners. This week, I'm at the Birmingham Institute of Forest Research to talk to Professor of Atmospheric Science, Rob McKenzie, and Senior Lecturer in Biology, Dr. Jerry Pritchard. We discuss the importance of understanding how plants and forests work, the carbon cycle, and a new facility that explores the ability of woodland to capture carbon dioxide. Um, so, Rob and Jerry, can you tell me what the Institute of Forest Research does here at the University? So the Birmingham Institute of Forest Research has a grand vision, which is to support natural science, social science and cultural research to do with forested landscapes anywhere in the world in order to understand how to live on the resources of this single planet that we have. So can you tell me some of the research that you've been doing recently then? Well, I mean, as a plant biologist who's interested in the the wider aspects of of how uh, plants react to climate change, that's one of my interests in this site. I mean, it has broader applications, as Rob's alluded to, but um, obviously carbon dioxide is um, important in the carbon cycle, as the name suggests. If you give a plant more carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide is the food it uses to make sugars in photosynthesis. So the implication would be that the plant would have more carbon. And there's a lot of follow-on things from that that would be quite interesting. So that carbon will flow through the ecosystem in the carbon cycle. It will potentially, new leaves will form and fall on the ground and that will stimulate microbial, fungal um, uh, organisms. There might also be uh, an issue of resource for the plant, so it might have more resources, so it might be able to defend itself better or reproduce more, so the whole ecology there might change. So then planting of vegetations in cities, for example, has a variety of benefits um, to the carbon cycle. Um, Can you tell me a little more about these benefits and and their processes? Well, no, that's quite contentious. So plants have a big effect on the carbon cycle globally. Um, If you think about the carbon that we're putting into the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels and by changing land use, so changing, say, from forests to arable land and so on, that puts carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. For every 100 molecules of carbon dioxide we put in the atmosphere that way, about 30 of them go into the land, mostly into forested vegetation. And surprisingly, not not necessarily in the tropics. It's actually the the extra tropics in the Northern Hemisphere that's doing most of this hard work. But to come back to your question, if you add up all the trees in an urban area, you don't get an awful lot of carbon. So the issue is to distinguish the work that the green living planet is doing globally really good piece of work drawing down carbon and distinguish that from different services that plants are providing in cities. I mean you mentioned the carbon cycle in cities but of course uh, plants use huge amounts of water 
uh, and that has an implication on the water cycle in cities. And it can be something as, as simple as actually cooling those hot spots in cities and making it a more comfortable environment. But also things people often don't think about in terms of subsidence in houses. So the amount of water they're sucking out of the soil might reach some steady state. If you cut that tree down, then the amount of water coming out of the soil changes and that can change the way buildings lie and, and, and lead to problems of cracking and things like that. There's actually a rather nice geographical story based in the West Midlands to do with the water underneath cities. Um, because we are the cradle of the Industrial Revolution, lots and lots of water was taken out of the rock below the West Midlands in order to, to, to do brewing and all, all manner of industrial applications. And that actually brought the water in that rock, it, that water table, it reduced it very much. Now that all we're in a post-industrial society, that water table is coming up again and actually beginning to cause us some flooding problems. Now, radical greening of a city, like you know, or cities like the West Midlands, could actually do uh, something in terms of managing that water table increase and bringing us back into uh, a better place with respect to urban floods and so on. I mean, there are, in terms of that and then the implication in the industrial revolution of pollution. Um, that we have been involved in some research in the past where we've tried to use trees to, to capture some of those underground pollutants and, and where, where they're volatiles, they can be uh, volatilised back into the atmosphere and, and, and prevent and, and uh, uh, save water sources. So there's a, a big role, a multitude of role that the, the water cycle and plants can play in urban environments. Quite apart from the, the normal phytoremediation where plants can be used to clean up poisonous sites. So, for example, you shouldn't grow cabbages on an old industrial site because they accumulate heavy metals. Now, if you're going to eat the cabbage, that's a bad thing. But if you want to clean up that site, that's a good thing. So does the Institute then work with policy for recommendations on how to shape urban spaces then? We do, yes. We work um, with national bodies like the Forestry and Woodlands Advisory Committees, and they're regionally separated, but they have a, an urban network which is focused especially on... Um, sustainable urban living and we work with our colleagues um, across the way in chemical engineering and, and in other parts of the university who are really thinking where so where that's coming back to the the grand vision of the institute that's where we are putting the science the social science um, together in order to understand policy making so you've mentioned some uk examples here could you tell me anything about examples in developing countries so rapidly developing urban areas and cities and the carbon on motorcycle there. Well, there's one. Um, there's one study we've been doing. We've we've done uh, relatively recently in East Asia, which um, shows a not altogether happy coincidence of very rapid expansion of an extremely important crop, oil palm. It turns out that, that palm oil um, is used in in hundreds and hundreds of different foodstuffs but but also in hundreds and hundreds of different cosmetics and, and other things so it's a very useful product and large parts of southeast asia have now been converted not necessarily directly converted from rainforest to oil palm but they have been they are they have ended up as oil palm the, the relevance there is that when that oil palm comes up close to cities the pollution from traffic from cities, and the oxides of nitrogen particularly that are produced by burning fuel in cars, mixes with 
um, a perfectly natural compound that palm oil plants happen to release in great abundance just as a kind of accident of their evolution. But they, th those chemicals combine in the atmosphere under the influence of sunlight and produce a kind of pollution called ozone smog. Jerry, can you tell me what you'll be talking about in the session today? Yes, well, um, we talked about carbon capture and carbon cycle and, and the, the fact that when the, the plant um, takes in carbon dioxide, it, it can make more sugars. And of course, that can be recorded in a tree in how much, how big the rings are. Uh, so in a good year, it'll it'll have wide rings, and in a, in a bad year, the rings will be will be smaller. So you, there is a record there of, of and, and we'll be able to monitor in the experiment um, how big the trees are growing by having devices on the site to measure their growth. But we have a historical record, as I say, in the dendrochronology of the tree, uh, and it allows us to correlate um, past um, weather events with how well the trees are going. Now, the fact that the tree is breathing in carbon dioxide, there's a problem for the tree as well. There's a linkage here between the water cycle and the carbon cycle, in that trees, plants colonise the land, and they've never solved the problem of how to stop drying out without losing carbon. Uh, and so when you open your stomata, the little pores in the leaves to take in the carbon dioxide, uh, they also lose water. So one of the things that these type of experiments, these face experiments are going to tell us is in a dry year, what choices will the trees make? Will they decide to spend their water in order to take in the carbon dioxide? Or will these trees, which the oak trees, for example, live a long time, will they shut up shop for a bit and wait for, for the water to come back? However, it's not just about the oak trees. There's an understory of small plants, annual plants and the others. And they, they obviously have to make different evolutionary decisions. And so in the combination of dry and wet and also nutrients as well. So the extra carbon might only be useful to the plant if they have enough nutrients. So, so there's a, quite a combination of factors here that over the 10 years and hopefully beyond we'll be able to unpick a, and how that woodland responds in a realistic way to the real climate change that's affecting us. So you mentioned the word there, dendrochronology. Can you just give a quick definition? Yes, well it's basically using trees to, to date things. So um, as I say, if you have a good year, you will have a nice um, uh, wide ring, and if you have a, a bad year, it'll be narrower. And of course, like a barcode, if you look across across the tree, uh, you might be able to, to to see in different trees in different areas the same um, the same uh, response. For example, in my in my youth, 1976 was a very dry year, and so there would have been very narrow rings then because the plants would have had to shut up. Now, if you'd found a tree in one part of the UK and in another part of the UK, they might very well you would have should have been able to match up where 1976 was for example on the basis of those the rings around there now if one tree was very young and the other one was very old you could put those two uh, patterns together and make a whole pattern going back even further so you have these overlapping tree rings and in fact I believe they go all the way back to in some parts of the world they can go back 14,000 years uh, and of course then when you find archaeology, like the archaeology that was found in the collapsed Iron Age house in the in the woodlands recently, in in the in the Fenlands recently, they find some wood. They can find the pattern of uh, of tree rings, and they can go to the uh, to the dendrochronology resources, and they can they can date that exactly. For example, uh, you know there was a grave around there. It was dated exactly to I think it was 553 BC. Now, carbon dating can't give you that precision. 
of course, that's one of the, the very important lines of evidence underpinning our whole science of climate change, the fact that we can go backwards in this kind of overlapping tree ring way um, back several thousand years. And then we can start to look at things like ice core records, where the fantastic analytical chemistry that can measure the composition of the gases inside a bubble in the ice allows you to go back another 800,000 years in the, in the biggest ice cores from Antarctica. And in all that time, we can see the variation of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And in fact, with other geological records, you can go back even further. And we know now, or we have evidence that strongly suggests that the carbon dioxide levels that we are going into, that we've just gone past the magic 400 parts per million level and we're going up, we won't stop going up anytime soon. We haven't been in that carbon dioxide environment on this planet for the last 20 million years. So we can go back a very long way. And um, one of the things I'll be doing for the teachers in, in a resource for teachers in, in this uh, workshop is, is just simply looking at tree rings and it can be something as simple as a log that you get to put on the fire at Christmas that you don't burn and simply with just with a ruler and spreadsheets you can calculate for that tree for that piece of wood uh, the recent uh, change in in the acquisition of carbon by that tree so some really nice simple resources for teachers in an open-ended way to start exploring this uh, which as you said as Rob says goes all the way back uh, into deep history. So I think we've touched there on deep history and kind of historical records. Rob, more recently your research has looked into the use of drones in atmospheric science. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about that. Well, I think robotics is one of the one of the places where we're really going to make changes in the way that science is done. And I think those changes are going to cascade down towards citizen science and certainly towards school and college science quite quickly because of the market, the other markets for drones. And that's fantastic. It means that people will be able to make measurements using uh, drones that they can buy out of a model shop for, for tens of pounds. It's really fantastic. One of the ways that we use them uh, for this kind of work is to fly over the top of a forest and look at the variations in the canopy, the way that the, 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 the trees, which ones emerge, which ones are slightly smaller, uh, and just see that complicated three-dimensional uh, setting um, and, and then try and understand why the woodland is, is uh, structured that way. Why are some, some individuals winning and others are, are perhaps die, uh, losing? Some might be dying from disease. What then happens um, when that creates a gap and how the gap is filled? Which resources will be available from the Institute? Well, it's, it's very much part of um, the Institute's um, remit to provide data and to make data available um, to whoever wants it because that's how people learn um, and that's also how science advances. We'll be providing a number of different um, resources. We have re uh, instruments that can measure the formation of tree rings that, that Jerry's just been speaking about but actually measure them very sensitively in real time. That's information that we'll be able to put up onto the web and pass um, to uh, out into into the general public, we have cameras which um, are just focused on 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 our research woodland, and can just follow the greenness 
of um, of the canopy as it as it goes through the season, and that ties into, of course, the science of phenology, understanding when and how uh, spring springs up, and and a bit of phenology that people often forget is how autumn. Uh, happens and whether it's changing too. So we've got real um, interesting data that we can give people to look at and they can in, uh, wrap in with their own uh, their own data, they can add in their own data. You've mentioned it in the citizen science. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that? Well I think it, uh, gone are the days when you have the lone experimenter at the desk uh, working on their own till they discover some great new new fact. Uh, I think, there, as, as Rob said, I mean, something like BIFOR produces so much data, uh, drones and flyovers and things like that produce a similar amount of data, that there is no time for everybody uh, to, 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 to really study everything that we need to. And if people work together uh, on different aspects of it, that they can usefully start to synthesize and, and, and actually do something with that data that actually does contribute to our knowledge. So, you know, people in schools, for example, rather than just doing a rather artificial uh, practical, what, what they can actually be doing is doing something that is useful to science and actually themselves being part of the scientific process in a genuine way. So I think it's because data's got so big these days and we, we to technology so big, we still need people to do it and triage that data. So I think, I think that's one aspect of it. It's about participation. I can give you a particular example which might, uh, which might chime. Um, and it sort of relates to the idea of searching star maps, which is a citizen science that a lot of people are familiar with. Well, we have a similar problem, um, but underneath the ground. So understanding anything about what's going on underneath the ground, anywhere actually, but especially in a forest, is really difficult. And in fact, the very best way that you can do it, and we'll be showing this to, to, to the teachers just in a moment, is to put a, it's a kind of an endoscope for a forest. So you put a camera down a tube and you record video images, but then you've got to try and figure out what these images mean. And that's, computers are still not good enough to, to recognise the patterns. They're not nearly as good as humans at recognising, for instance, very fine roots and how those roots might be interacting with fungi. And that's where, in exactly the same way as students the world over have been finding supernovae and, and, and things happening on a galactic scale, they can actually find really important things happening on a microscopic scale um, in these images that are taken from below, from below the surface of the woodland. Thank you for listening. For access to further resources, publications and curriculum relevant material to support geographical learning and teaching, please go to www.rgs.org forward slash resources.